pastors here like using iPads. I feel uh, I'm at the right place. <laughs> Just give me a second here, get set up. Well, I do bring you greetings from uh, Megumi Bible Church in Tokyo. And, well, I don't know how many of you visited. I think we have uh, some record of it because we have these, um, these visitor cards that you sign up. And I guess I could look back and count them up. But, wow, uh, thank you so much for uh, visiting our, our church. It's always great to have visitors. Um, Victor Chen, I think, came like three, four times in the last <laughs> 12 months. I'm about to make him an honorary member of our church. <laughs> but uh, we love having Victor as well. So uh, it's been great uh, developing uh, this relationship between uh, our church and yours. Uh, Happy New Year's Eve, everyone. And um, yeah, it's really uh, an honor to be here. So let me uh, pray, and we'll get into today's message. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to come before you this last day of the calendar year uh, to worship you, Lord. Thank you for the worship that has been taking place already, and uh, pray that you bless time as we enter a time of teaching in your word. May you help us to be humble before your word. Your word is powerful, it changes lives, and I pray that you help us to remember uh, that it is indeed your word, your truth. And I pray that you'd help us uh, to apply it to our lives, uh, help us understand it and apply it to our lives even this morning. Praise in Christ's name, amen. Now, wow, this thing's really big. <laughs> I think uh, the pulpit that I have at our church wasn't deliberate, but it's, it's pretty small. <laughs> but um, I don't know if you guys can really see me that much. Maybe I could stand up to the side a little bit. But uh, I'll start off by, by saying this. I like to run. I don't look like it, but I like to run. And before I went to uh, Japan, I probably ran two, three times a week, two, three miles at a time. That's not a whole lot, um, but I like doing that. <laughs> I haven't really been able to do it since, but I like doing that. Now, during uh, the time I was running frequently, um, <laughs> this is 10, 15 years ago, right? Um, I was reading a book, or I read a book called Born to Run, that was actually recommended by Deborah's brother, <laughs> uh, Ben, to me. And uh, it's primarily about uh, barefoot running. I don't know if you guys remember that. There's like this barefoot running craze, and uh, now they make, um, well, they've been doing it for a while. They make these free runner shoes that are really flexible in the sole. And, uh, well, some people just straight up go barefoot running. But that's what the book is about. And that book was written back in 2009, and the debate regarding barefoot running, whether it's actually a good thing or not, uh, still continues today. Now, I have a friend um, who's a podiatrist. Some of you might know him. His name's Manoj. <laughs> but uh, I asked him about that. I said, what do you think about barefoot running? And he said, barefoot running's great. Great for business, that is. <laughs> so he has one view uh, regarding barefoot running. And then there are others who swear by it. Anyways, the most fascinating part of that book for me was learning about a Mexican tribe uh, called the, I don't even say, I'm not sure if I'm saying this right, Tarahumara or something like that. And what's so fascinating uh, to me about them was that running was part of their culture, and when they went running, they ran for like 200 miles uh, over a couple of days. That is 
absolutely crazy. 200 miles after uh, over a couple days. Now, most of us cannot run a marathon. That's 26 miles, right? And these people would run seven to eight marathons over a few days. How are they able to do this? Now, there are several tricks um, as to how they're able to run so far and for so long at a time. But their tricks are really rather simple. And it mainly involves their running style, their diet, and just lots of practice. Regarding the running style, instead of taking these long strides that we normally see when people run, like those long strides, there's a like great impact on the feet. Maybe you didn't think about that, but there's a great impact on the feet. And even now, like people, like since like, they've invented running shoes that are real soft and cushy, and those are supposed to soften the impact, right? But there's a lot more injuries now than ever been before because of that. Now, this Mexican tribe, they would take just quick little steps that aren't that hard on the body. So that was part of their strategy. And then another one was diet. And they would take these drinks with them, and they'd put chia seeds in there. And we now know that chia seeds are like a superfood and very good for you. And then uh, practice, right? Wherever, they just ran wherever they went. So they're just practicing all the time. So really, the keys for them to run with endurance was just simple technique, diet, exercise, or practice. In the same way, the key to running the race of life is really pretty simple as well. It's really just about doing a few simple things well. In Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, which I believe was read earlier today, uh, the author of Hebrews, we don't know who he is, uh, reveals what the keys to running are, uh, running the race of life are. So if you haven't already, please turn your Bibles to Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Well, I guess it's up behind me. <laughs> you don't have to turn there. But... Um, Let's see, this is the ESV, right? Um, I'm actually going to read from the NESV, which is pretty close. Uh, and I'll maybe highlight a couple words that are uh, important, but a little bit different. But let me read from the NESV. You can follow, on the, follow along on the ESV, that's fine. But I'm reading from the NESV. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance, that's a little bit different, uh, and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. So that's a little bit different. The author, and that's kind of the last word that's different that I'm going to highlight, and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, we're going to find two keys to running the race of life, the Christian life, with endurance. So it's two keys uh, to running the race of life with endurance. The first key is to remove all hindrances. Remove all hindrances. And this is found in verse 1. And then the second key is to follow the leader. Follow the leader. And this is found in verses 2 and 3. Now if we apply uh, what the writer of Hebrews says and do these two things, namely to remove 
all hindrances, which is found in verse 1, and to follow the leader, which is found in verses 2 and 3, we will be able to run the, light, uh, the race of life with endurance. In other words, we'll be able to faithfully live for God to the end of our lives if we apply what Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 says. Now, before we go any further, I'd like to briefly comment on the background of the book of Hebrews. Uh, first, I kind of alluded to it earlier. We do not know for sure who the writer of the book of Hebrews is. There's a lot of uh, guesses. Um, we don't know because the writer doesn't identify himself in the book. Um, but there's some guesses. People, some people say Paul. He might be the number one candidate. Uh, Barnabas, Silas, Apollos, Luke are all uh, kind of given out there by different scholars uh, as common guesses. But in the end, no one really knows. And that's okay. We'll just have to ask God when we get to heaven. And that's fine. We also don't know exactly who the recipients are either. It was not written to any particular church. And it was probably just uh, circulated amongst uh, the different churches that existed during that time. But what we do know for sure about the recipients is that they knew their Old Testament. There are many references to the Old Testament throughout the letter. And that's why this letter is known as the letter or the book of Hebrews. So they are probably Jewish Christians. And we also know from several passages that the recipients are going through persecution. For example, in chapter 13, verse 23, the writer says that Timothy, who is the pastor of the church at Ephesus, had just been released from prison. So this incident would place the letter sometime between 67 and 69 A.D. This would be around the end of the Roman Emperor Nero's uh, great persecution of Christians. And just to give a brief note on Nero, uh, I used to have this book called uh, The Most Evil Men and Women in History. I just picked that up from Barnes & Noble back when Barnes & Noble existed, I guess. I don't know if it still exists here, but I think uh, Amazon, things like that, have kind of put those kind of bookstores out of business. But uh, I picked it up from the, like, uh, the sale rack or something a long time ago because it sounded really interesting, right? Who doesn't want to read about the most evil men and women in history? So in this book, uh, there were 16 people uh, listed, and indeed, Nero uh, is one of them. So he's considered one of the 16 top evil people in history, at least t according to one person. And in that account on Nero, there is a, uh, a brief description of how he used to persecute Christians, how he used to light them up in his garden as, you know, in the form of torches, and how he fed them uh, to lions uh, dressed in animal clothing or animal skins. So Nero is a pretty evil guy, and he was the emperor at the time, uh, probably when the book of Hebrews was written. So... It makes sense for the writer of Hebrews to write this letter of encouragement uh, to these believers who are going through such harsh persecution. Now let's talk about the first key to running the race with endurance, namely to remove all, in, uh, all hindrances, which is found in verse 1. In verse 1, the writer says that the things that we need to remove fall into one of two categories, or there's two different categories of things. Uh, that we need to deal with. Now, the first category of things is encumbrances or weight in uh, ESV, and there's not that much of a difference there, but 
Um, I'm going to stick with the word encumbrances. Uh, these are things that are not necessarily sin, but they are things that hinder our ability to run freely. When you look at runners, uh, you will notice that they wear very little. So don't look at them too long, okay? But you'll notice that they wear, you know, short shorts, uh, tank top, very light shoes. They might have a watch, and they might be carrying a bottle of something to drink. But other than that, they usually don't have much else. Now, it wouldn't be wrong for them uh, to carry other things. It's kind of up to them. But the serious runner will understand that the more weight that he or she carries, the harder it is to run. I mean, this is simple, right? And in fact, depending on how far someone wants to run, how much stuff that person carries might determine whether that person can make it to the end or not. So when running, you have to seriously think about what you want to be carrying around with you. Now, the same principles apply to running the race of life. Like it or not, life is a race and you are in it. It's a long-distance race and it lasts a lifetime. And it takes endurance to run well. If you want to run well as a Christian, the writer of Hebrews says that you need to remove every encumbrance while running. You'll need to take a close and honest look at your life and evaluate what those things are. Now, I cannot tell you <laughs> what you need to throw off as an encumbrance or what is an encumbrance for you, because that's a personal matter. However, I will make some suggestions so you have an idea of what you might need to do. Now, I think our encumbrances are related mostly to the way we spend our resources, like our time, our money, and our energy. So if the way we spend our time, money, and energy hinders us from living a life of devotion to God, something has to change. There's something that we need to remove from our lives. If some hobby hinders our ability to serve God well, we either need to stop doing that hobby altogether, at least significantly decrease it, um, or decrease the resources that we're spending on it. If we're spending a lot of time watching TV or surfing the internet, but don't read our Bibles or pray at all during the week, something has to change. If some extracurricular activity takes your attention away from Jesus, something has to change. You either have to use that activity in such a way that's an act of worship for Jesus, or you have to stop doing it because it's a hindrance to your Christian life. Again, I cannot make these decisions for you. And these things in themselves are not sin. I can't tell you how much TV you can watch or how you can spend your money. But please remember this. This world is not our home. We don't belong here. We're aliens and strangers here. And we're just pilgrims passing through. And as someone said, pilgrims travel light. So please take a close look at your own heart and decide what things might be hindering you from running the Christian life, from running more faithfully for God. Now, on the other hand, 
there are things that are sin. And for those things, I have full authority from the Bible, from God, to tell you that you need to stop doing those things. So that's the second category of things that the writer of Hebrews says that we must remove. So later in verse 1, the writer talks about laying aside the sin which so easily entangles us. And he says this because he understands that sin is a trap. It's like a fish that gets caught in a net. It can't go anywhere until it frees itself. And when we're caught in some sin, we're like that fish in that net. And we're not going to advance our Christian life if we're entangled in sin. And how likely is it for a fish that's caught in a net to free itself? It's hard. It's not likely. And it's the same for us when we're caught in sin. Now, some sins you might be able to handle on your own. Well, you and the Lord, right? However, there are certain sins that you will need help overcoming. And if you're the kind of person who never seeks help or advice from others and just keeps sin bottled up inside of you, that sin will destroy you. That guilt, the guilt of secret sin, will eat you up inside. That's how sin works. Sin entangles you and takes you out of the race. So the writer of Hebrews says that you need to lay aside that sin. In other words, you need to deal with that sin, whatever it is. It might be some kind of hatred or bitterness towards someone that you're harboring. It might be some kind of sexual sin that no one knows about. It might even be unbelief. Yes, unbelief is a sin. In fact, it's the worst sin of all because that's actually the only one that God doesn't forgive, right? So maybe you've been sitting in these pews all these years and you're really not a, you know inside that you're really not a believer, but you kind of go to church because you're embarrassed to say that, you know, I'm really not a believer. But you need to deal with that. You need to tell someone about that and help and allow them to help you as well. But no matter what sin it is, you need to deal with it. And the best way for you to start dealing with it is to talk about it with someone else. And please know that with God, there's always forgiveness. As my, or not just mine, but some of our our college pastor, Rick Holland, who's my college pastor for many years, uh, would always say or often say, no matter how many steps you take away from God, it's only one step back. And that step is repentance. You turn around, you face God, and God takes you back. So the turnaround is the super important but super hard part. But then you ask God for forgiveness. He grants it, and you live according to that forgiveness. Now, before we move on to the next point, I'd like to make a brief comment on those cloud of witnesses. We even sang about the cloud of witnesses. Um, it's in the, the first part of this verse, verse 1. Now, there's really no debate uh, that the cloud of witnesses refers to the faithful Old Testament saints mentioned in the previous chapter, chapter 11. We <laughs> sang about that with that by faith song, right? That therefore, at the beginning of verse 1, clearly points back to chapter 11, known as the Hall of Faith, right? However, some people believe that these Old Testament saints are now uh, watching us run the Christian life as spectators. That's one view, and major, uh, re- major reason why they believe that is because verse 1 says that this cloud of witnesses is surrounding us. So it might sound like those Old Testament saints uh, were watching the recipients of Hebrews 
uh, as if they're sitting in the stands of a stadium and the Hebrew Christians were on the field. But it's unlikely that that's what the writer meant. Now first, as one scholar said, the word cloud does not point to uh, like a separation between the uh, people running the race and uh, the witnesses, but that there's a unity between the witnesses and the recipients. There isn't a fine line between them. Like when you're in a cloud, uh, it's hard to tell where its borders are. So the word cloud isn't used to describe distinctions there. And then second, the surrounding does not refer to uh, the distant surrounding of the spectators in the grandstands and the athletes performing on the field, but to, to the surrounding of fellow runners uh, around each other, other on the race course. So if you can manage yourself running, it's the people running around you as well that seems to be uh, pointing to this cloud of witnesses. And if the writer meant spectators, he could have used a different Greek word. However, he chose the word witnesses, which is exactly what the active participants, participants in the race of life are. The Old Testament saints ran the race of life as faithful witnesses to God and now serve as an encouragement uh, and example to those running after them. So we would do well to read those Old Testament stories of faith to see how they laid aside encumbrances and sins and ran the race with endurance. So the first key to running the race of life with endurance is to remove all hindrances, uh, both sins as well as thins, things that are not necessarily sinful. We don't want anything slowing us down from living a life of faithfulness to God. Now the second key is to follow the leader, which we find in verses 2 and 3. And the leader is, of course, Jesus. He is the leader because he is the author or founder, as it says in the ESV, and perfecter of faith. So what does it mean for Jesus to be the author and perfecter of faith? Now first we need to closely examine the word faith. Faith is a word that's full of deep meaning. Faith is not just about saying that you believe in something. It's about living according to what you believe in. The Old Testament saints in the previous chapter all lived in in an unusual way because they believed in God. Someone who doesn't believe in God will look at the life of an Old Testament saint and think that guy's weird. There's something different about him. So when the writer of Hebrews talks about faith, he's talking about a life of faith that demonstrates complete trust and faith in God. Next, let's take a look at the term translated as author. Now, the Greek word can be translated different ways. Uh, some people take it to mean pioneer or trailblazer. Uh, according to this definition, it means that Jesus was the first to complete uh, a full life of faith. However, the word can also mean leader or even champion. A couple of commentators uh, translate it that way. So a champion is someone who's best in any particular field. For example, uh, you can say that Ichiro, I'm, I'm favoring Japanese guys right now, but <laughs> you can say that Ichiro uh, is a champion of hitting in baseball. Between his time in uh, uh, Japan and America, he has a total of 4,367 hits, which is about 100 more than Pete Rose, who is the second most on, on the list. 
Ichiro also has a single se uh, season record for hits, which is 262. So you can say that Ichiro is a champion in baseball, especially with regards to hitting. Now in the same way, and I'm taking this view, uh, Jesus is the champion for the life of faith. He was not necessarily, he wasn't the first to live the life of faith. Um, all the people listen, Hebrews 11 lived a life of faith on earth before Jesus did. However, Jesus lived the life of faith far better than anyone else did. Anyone who ever lived. He did it best and he left a perfect example for us. He is the champion of the life of faith. He's also the perfecter of the life of faith. The word itself means someone who brings something to a successful completion. So when that definition is applied to this passage, it means that Jesus is someone who successfully completed a life of faith in God. The fact that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God supports the idea that he finished his race successfully. And Jesus is now enjoy, uh, uh, enjoying that rest at the right hand of God, which is the most honorable place where anyone can be. Also, please note that the writer of Hebrews could have called him Christ, Lord, or some other name. Jesus has many, many names, right? Uh, he could have uh, chosen a name that focused more on deity, but instead chose to call Jesus by his human name. And the reason for this is probably because the writer wanted to emphasize that Jesus was able to live a life of faith as a human. That it was the man, Christ Jesus, who lived this life of faith. If Jesus used his powers that he possessed as God to live a life of faith, then none of us have a chance, right? None of us are God. None of us will be able to live a life of faith like he did if he did it in his deity. But he did it in his humanity. He did it believing and trusting in God as the man Christ Jesus. And the writer wants to emphasize that we too can live that same life of faith that he did. And that we can follow him, follow Jesus in the same path that he traveled. The writer then says that there are two aspects of Jesus' life that we should follow. First, we should follow Jesus in the way he obeyed God's commands. And this is demonstrated in the way Jesus endured the cross, as mentioned in verse 2. This is probably the hardest thing God could have asked anybody to do, right? I mean, there's obviously physical pain involved in enduring the cross. I can't think of too many things that are more painful than crucifixion. However, we must not forget that there is spiritual pain involved as well. On the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God for the sins of all mankind. I can't imagine how painful that aspect of the crucifixion was. But yet, Jesus obe obeyed God perfectly and died on the cross for our sins. How was he able to do this? The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus did it because of the joy that he would get out of it. And I think there are two types of joy that are involved here. First, I think that Jesus took joy in obeying God in the same way a good servant enjoys obeying his master. And you can see that principle demonstrated in the parable of the faithful servant in Matthew 25. A good servant wants to please his master. 
And there never has been or never will there ever be a better servant than Jesus. And Jesus looked forward to hearing those words, well done, good and faithful servant from God. And then second, I think Jesus took joy in making salvation available to mankind. We know from Luke 15, 7 and 15, 10 that there is rejoicing in heaven when sinners are saved. Jesus looked forward to that same joy as he obeyed God's will and died for the sins of mankind. And because he looked forward to those different joys that he would experience, the shame of being crucified was nothing to him. In other words, Jesus did not mind experience that shame involved with being crucified as a criminal because the joy would be worth it to him. For Jesus, the shame of the cross was a small price to pay that he would get in return, for the joy that he would get in return. So this is the Jesus that we need to fix our eyes on. This is the Jesus we need to follow. But following Jesus obviously will not be easy. The Bible says that we need to take up our crosses. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, Mark 8, 34, Luke 9, 23, that if we want to come after him, we need to deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow him. The cross was an instrument of death. And what Jesus meant is that if we want uh, to follow him, we need to die to ourselves. And to use a, a business analogy, I think all of you can identify that, that because you're all in the, a lot of you have pretty good jobs, I think, uh, being in the Silicon Valley. But to use a, a business analogy, Jesus is saying that if you want to follow him, you need to stop being your own boss and recognize God as your new boss. If God tells you to do something, you do it, just like how a subordinate uh, needs to follow the orders of his boss. The life of faith requires you to live with God as your boss. Or as someone said, if you're a Christian, you are under new management. And Jesus set the ultimate example for this. Nothing brought him more joy than doing the will of God. Now we, need, we need to follow Jesus' example and do the same. And please uh, keep in mind that God is better than any human boss you can hop, uh, possibly have. Even the, you know, the best of human bosses have, have nothing on God. They cannot compare with him. He's the best boss you can possibly have. He's more just, fair, loving, gracious than any human boss can ever be. Now, there's a second thing that Jesus exemplified uh, besides a joyful life of obedience to God. He was also an example of perseverance through suffering. And this can be seen in verse 3, which talks about the way Jesus endured hostility from sinners. Now, if you read about Jesus' life in the Gospels, you can see that Jesus pretty much faced opposition wherever he went. The scribes and Pharisees were the main groups that opposed him. However, normal Jews opposed him as well. In John 10, 31 through 33, some Jews uh, tried to stone Jesus because he claimed to be God. According to Matthew 13, 54 through 57, people from Jesus' hometown opposed him. And according to John 7, 5, even Jesus' own brothers didn't believe him initially. So, no matter where Jesus was, wherever, whatever direction he turned, he faced opposition. However, no matter how difficult or hurtful the opposition was, Jesus was able to handle it. He trusted in God's goodness 
and was able to endure any and all hostility that came his way. So Jesus set the example for us in handling hostility God's way. Now I don't know what kind of hostility that you've faced as a Christian. And even in the U.S., Christians face persecution of some sort. It really happens everywhere, at least to some degree. And I'm sure that some of you, uh, if not all of you, have faced some kind of hostility, some type of persecution from friends or acquaintances, neighbors, coworkers, maybe even family, some unbeliever in your life. But the writer of Hebrews has a word of encouragement for us. He tells us to look to Jesus and never look away. He is our ultimate example. So we need to look at him carefully and meditate upon his life. And if we do that, we can find encouragement. When we keep our eyes fixed on him, we will not lose heart. We will not grow weary, no matter how bad our situation is. In the same way a child keeps the image of his favorite athlete, maybe, uh, in his mind, and persists in practicing harder and harder to become like that athlete, we too need to keep Jesus in the forefront of our minds so we can press on in the Christian life. So today we have seen two keys to running the la- uh, race of life with endurance. The first key is to remove all hindrances. Hindrances can come in the form of both sin and non-sin, non-sinful things. We also need to remove anything, we need to remove anything that can slow us down in our pursuit of God, of knowing him and living for him. And then the second key is to follow the leader. The leader is, of course, none other than Jesus Christ. He is the greatest example of faith who ever lived. And if we keep our eyes fixed on him, we can finish the race of life successfully like he did. And these are simple things, right? that we should work hard at doing. But that's exactly the problem, right? It's hard to even do, uh, to do even simple things if we're not motivated. My encouragement to you is to take that first step and to see for yourself how awesome God is or how awesome Jesus is. In Psalm 34, 8, David says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. You need to experience God for yourself. You need to read the Bible for yourself. You need to meditate upon God for yourself. Don't settle for a second-hand knowledge of God. Don't just listen to the messages up here and just be content with that. Apply these messages that you hear from this pulpit so that you can experience the goodness of God in your life. Now, about 20 uh, years ago, um, I went to Yosemite National Park for the first time, and it's one of the most beautiful places in America, perhaps the planet. And to get to the main valley, and some of you probably know this because you've been there. Uh, so in the main valley, there's this parking lot, and that's where the, a lot of the hiking trails start. And you have to drive through a bunch of tunnels uh, to get there. Uh, and you're going through tunnels, uh, you're going through tr- mountains uh, that surround the valley. But once you get through that last tunnel, the view of the valley is amazing. You can see beautiful forests, trees, forests, mountains, and waterfalls for miles. Unfortunately, <laughs> the first time I went there, I was driving. <laughs> this is what Stephen was alluding to earlier, I think. So I was, I was the one driving. 
and uh, my friend Steve, not <laughs> the Steve, but a guy named Steve Runyon. I think some of you uh, know who he is. He was sitting next to me while I was driving. And once we got through that last tunnel, he said, wow, Ray, this view is amazing. Don't look, but let me tell you about it. And so he starts describing it in words while I'm trying to focus on not kill, you know, getting us killed driving, right? So do you think I'd be content in just uh, listening to Steve's description of the beauty of Yosemite National Park? And of course not. Of course not. No one just wants to hear about it. If it's that beautiful, you want to see it with your own eyes. So once uh, we parked, got out of the car, you know, I got to enjoy the view for myself. So likewise, I hope that you will not settle for some second-hand knowledge of Jesus. He is the most beautiful and fascinating person who ever existed. And of course, he continues to exist. And you can see him when you open your Bible. You can read about him in there. And then you can experience him in life by applying God's word. So fix your eyes on him. Don't ever turn away. And follow him until you reach the end of your race. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this passage of scripture that we're able to study today. Thank you, most of all, for Christ and his example to us. Thank you for what he has done. So there's certain things that we cannot do, but there's many things that he is an example for us regarding. He lived a life of faith. He obeyed your will to the end, to the point of death, even death on the cross. And he did it in his humanity, Lord. He trusted you. And I pray that you'd help us to realize that we can live a life of faith in the same way. With the power of the Holy Spirit and with your grace, we can do that as well. So please help us to fix our eyes in Christ. Help us to remember that we have hope in him. And that is a rock-solid hope that we can have, Lord. So may you grant us the faith and strength and wisdom we need to live this life, to run this race for your glory. Praise in Christ's name, amen. Thank you, Pastor Ray. Let's stand together.